0: This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review.
1: Hello, and welcome to Trumpet Hour for this Friday, November 17th, 2023. We are bringing you the news of the week from four of our Philadelphia Trumpet writers and editors. We divide the world into four regions, and we look for certain things to be occurring in those regions. Those four writers are Mihailo Zekic, Richard Palmer, Jeremiah Jacques, and Andrew Miller. Hello there. Good Good afternoon. Jeremiah Jacques, among your other responsibilities here at the Trumpet office is you watch the news, and not just national news like most of us or world news, uh, but specifically news about Asia.
0: That's right, yes. And one big story out of the Orient this week is that Chairman Xi Jinping of China has made a big visit to the U.S. this week. Um, Mr. Miller will actually be discussing that in depth a little later, so we'll leave the details of that story to him. Another one here about Russia illegally funneling immigrants from the Middle East and Africa into Finland. The Finns have found at least four border crossings where this is happening. And Finnish authorities are shutting down their border with Russia. They say that this is clearly an attempt by Russia to destabilize Finland and to just weaken it. And we've seen this happening um, in myriad ways with other European nations as well. So it's definitely a situation to keep an eye on there. Another short story here about Putin preparing for his re-election campaign. He, uh, he hasn't yet officially announced that he's running for re-election when his current term ends in March 2024. But this week he did start mobilizing a group of celebrities to support his bid, which will most likely be announced next month. So it's a clear sign that he you know plans to go through with another one of these sham votes uh, just to prolong his rule and give it kind of a veneer of legitimacy. And the suspense with this vote is, is really killing me here. <laughs> Just kidding, of course. On- onlookers inside and outside of Russia understand that between Putin's true popularity and his ability to rig votes, uh, there, it would be virtually impossible for him to lose. So I don't think we're in for any big surprises with the upcoming Russian election. One other small story here from the Atlantic Council yesterday. They put together an impressive collection of data showing all the help that China is giving Russia uh, to assist with the war against Ukraine. This help stops short of overtly lethal aid, but there are huge numbers of excavators, front end shovel loaders, things like that, that China is sending to the Russians to dig trenches for their soldiers. Also, many large trucks, non-agricultural tractors, semiconductors, ball bearings, commercial drones that can be rigged to drop explosives. So it shows that even though China is still trying not to violate the sanctions banning lethal aid, the Chinese are still doing a great deal to help Russia. And this report actually says that the Chinese help is a big reason why Russia has been able to stand up against Ukraine's counteroffensive without losing much of the land they held. So this Chinese
1: help is a notable factor in the war. So that caught my eye or my ear, I guess. Vladimir Putin, who has been in power since the year 2000, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, actually, uh, New Year's Eve 1999. 1999. (laughs) Yeah. And is getting ready to do nothing less than stay in power past 2024, but that he's using immigrants as a tool not just, oh, we have too many immigrants, you know, and they're overflowing into your country, but using the immigration as a weapon. Yeah,
0: even the, uh, a lot of what's happening in Syria, that's caused huge influxes of migrants into, you know, Europe. Um, even a lot of that appears to be by Russian design. They know that that destabilizes Europe. And so the Russians are, that, that's not just kind of a happenstance but it's a
1: part of an intentional result, I think, of their their actions in the Middle East. That's interesting. And, and the effect of immigration is, is undeniable. So if a power could use it, I'm sure it would. And I'm sure that it is. Last night, I was reading your draft of your feature article for the Philadelphia Trumpet 2024, January edition. And it was just really comprehensive look at the conflict between Russia and and Ukraine and the lies and the spin that are are going on and surrounding that conflict. Uh, Your main story is about Russia. That's right. This big story is just
0: more about Russia's war on Ukraine, and specifically about a report published yesterday saying that Russia now has a force inside of Ukraine more than double the size of the force that it invaded the country with almost two years ago. This report is by a leading Ukrainian military observer. His name is Oleksandr Kovalenko. He's a director of the Information Resistance Military Information Platform. And his data says Moscow's troop strength inside Ukraine now exceeds 400,000 soldiers. So pretty stunning number there. And the reason why this is so significant is because we see the war now shifting into a new phase. We, We spoke about this on a recent episode, but it seems to be basically now in a phase of positional warfare, of mostly static and attritional fighting. So this shows that Putin is, you know, he's really not in as much trouble with the war as many in the West hope, and as they sometimes portray him as being. Putin and his regime, of course, we know that they have zero regard for Russian lives, and they have the manpower at their disposal to sustain a war of this kind, like a war of attrition, for years. This report says that even if they continue to lose 500 to 1,000 men per day, That is believed to be the current rates of Russian losses in in recent weeks, which is just a stunning number. But even if the rates stayed at those stratospheric levels, this report argues that Russia could still sustain the war for years. And, you know, you look at a country with 144 million people, and that does seem reasonable. And so this is sobering to read about just the vast amount of manpower at Russia's disposal. And this comes, of course, as the winter is approaching. in Ukraine. And with the return of winter, we can expect Russia to once again start to focus on targeting Ukraine's energy infrastructure as they did last winter.
2: So what Russia has been doing the last couple months is saving up their missiles and drones. Yes, they still do occasional strategic strikes, but their plan has always been, they state this on Kremlin State TV, to go after Ukraine's energy infrastructure again this winter to deprive as many civilians as possible of electricity, heat, and running water. These are war crimes.
1: Russia doesn't care.
0: That was analyst Jake Bro there, explaining this Russian tactic of targeting Ukraine's power grids during the winter, just trying to freeze as many people as possible and deprive them of running water, Um, mostly just as an attempt to demoralize the population and hopefully convince them to let Russia take over the country. So that's basically what we saw last winter. And Ukraine actually had a remarkably mild winter last year, much to the you know, chagrin and consternation of the Russians. But now the war is still grinding on, and Russia will once again be trying this. And it's uh, very sobering to remember all the people dying and suffering there and to
1: know that this war could still be years from ending. Russia, somewhat famous for being willing to fight wars of attrition, to throw waves and waves of soldiers into conflicts. I just looked up the Iraq troop surge that was like in the news for quite a few news cycles back during the Iraq war. There's 20,000 and that just showing you the scale of what's going on in Europe, whether you're seeing it on the headlines right now or whether, you know, some sports headline is dominating the news, whatever Whatever you're seeing and and is being conveyed to you, that's the reality of what's happening in the background there. 400,000 Russian troops doing all kinds of damage and atrocities, as, as your article brings out. And I hope that the listener will also be a reader of the January 2024 edition. So you're watching this for a very clear reason.
0: Yes. You know, whatever happens in the short term, we can be sure that Putin will survive this war politically and go on to fight larger wars soon because that's something that's foretold in Bible prophecy, mainly Ezekiel chapter 38. Trumpet editor-in-chief, Cheryl Fleury, has said that the details of this chapter show that the, the figure mentioned here as a leader of Asian nations waging war is none other than Vladimir Putin. So because of this, we can be sure that whatever happens, Putin's grip on power is sure, and we should expect him to go on to fight other wars far larger than this one very soon. For anyone who would like to understand the details of that chapter there in Ezekiel and other passages that relate to it, we have an article called Why the Trumpet Watches a
1: Russian Strongman Dominating Asia that uh, goes through all of that in quite a bit of depth. So we have an article on the Russian army doubling in size. You can read that at thetrumpet.com on that specific news event. And I I was just thinking, how many leaders have come and gone since 1999, right? And Vladimir Putin... We're used to him being around, being in power, controlling Russia and using it aggressively. That's just incredible that he's still around and that Gerald Flurry identified him as being here to stay in the prophesied Prince of Russia. And you can learn more about that, as you say, and why the trumpet watches a Russian strongman dominating Asia. From the region of Asia and Russia, we now go west a bit and south a bit to the region of the Middle East. Mihailo Zekic, catch us up quickly on what has been happening in this theater of conflict.
2: Well, for an update on how the Gaza ground invasion is going, as many of our listeners probably have seen in the news cycle for the past few days, there was a big battle at Al Shifa Hospital in Gaza between the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, and Hamas, I had identified beforehand al-Shifa as one of the command centers of Hamas, if you could believe that, a command center built in a hospital, but that's nothing new for Hamas. They usually use targets like this, schools, other civilian infrastructure to house weapons to base themselves in the hopes that if all else fails and Israel bombs them, then Israel will get bad press from the international media for bombing a hospital. So far, their IDF still hasn't exposed the whole of the center, but they have found at least one tunnel going under the hospital and weapons stockpiles. And one uh, Palestinian survivor who was a patient at the hospital said that there were Hamas terrorists among the patients and they're disguised as civilians. So this is probably not the last of what we'll hear about actions from there. And also Israel uh, had reportedly also captured Gaza's port which is, of course, on the northern tip of the Mediterranean, so Gaza City more or less is fully enclosed now, and we can expect the actual urban fighting to in Gaza City itself to start soon. On Wednesday, the International Atomic Energy Agency also announced in a quarterly report that Iran has enough 60% enriched uranium to develop three nuclear bombs. Now, you need 90% for uranium to be weapons-grade, so there's still a bit of ways to go with that, but also, as we talked about in this program before, has no known civilian values, so it doesn't take much more effort to turn that into weapons grade, so we'll keep our eyes on that. And speaking of Iran, last Saturday, Iranian President Ibrahim Raisi made his first visit to Saudi Arabia since relations between Iran and Saudi Arabia were restored in March. This is obviously a very important relationship in the Middle East, one that... A lot of things go on behind the scenes that maybe the average news watcher may not be able to discern right away, but we'll certainly keep our eyes on that as well and how their relationship progresses and or deteriorates.
1: You can see in those videos that the Israel Defense Forces have put out of uh, Shifa Hospital, they will take you on a tour and you will see what they call go bags, which is just basically a duffel bag. And inside is Hamas fatigue's military-style communications devices, numerous magazines, and, of course, the requisite AK-47. They found them stuffed behind MRI machines. They found them in cabinets right next to other medical supplies. And so it's pretty clear the nature of the conflict that is unfolding there. And you wonder, how does it come to this? How people who do that type of thing and are promising more October 7th, if you saw that on Turkish television, They're promising more October 7th, October 10th, October 1 millionths. How are they taken seriously and how are they powerful enough to do what they've done and and to dominate even a region as large as the Gaza Strip? How does it come to this? I think your main topic shows us how it comes to this. Indeed. So
2: on November 14th, the U.S. government announced that Secretary of State Anthony Blinken signed a 120-day waiver extension allowing Iraq to continue to purchase Iranian electricity without extension. Iraq's an interesting country when we talk about Iran and the United States and sanctions and whatnot because they get a lot of exemptions so they could make business deals with the Iranians simply because, according to the logic of figures in the State Department, if Iraq can't trade with Iran, then there's going to be economic collapse there and nobody wants that. So it's better to just let them do it and look the other way. But this particular waiver has an interesting caveat with it. It also allows Iran to access $10 billion. That's 10 with nine zeros after it, billion dollars stored in Iraqi escrow accounts. If this sounds familiar to people, as in something that happened in September, that's because this is basically the exact same thing the U.S. government did on September 11th, 9-11, when they gave Iran six $6 billion worth of funds through sanctions waivers. And like that episode, this $10 billion, almost double that original amount is supposedly for humanitarian purposes. But I mean, the elephant in the room is that Iran is going to use that money for whatever it wants.
1: So I will say we have heard this a lot, I've addressed it a lot. So with respect to the Iranian regime, it has always funded destabilizing activities. It has done that first and foremost it's one of its top priorities it does that whether it receives whether its people receive humanitarian benefits or not
2: now that was state department spokesman matt miller speaking to reporters about this waiver he was trying to show that iran's just going to keep doing what they're doing so that doesn't really have any impact on whether we give them humanitarian aid or not But at the same time, it's an admission that Iran is going to keep doing what they're doing. Iran is still going to be funding terror groups. Iran is still going to be starting wars, supporting wars like the one we're seeing in Gaza right now, as you mentioned, and all over the Middle East. $10 billion gives them a lot of leeway to do that. And again, you'll hear proponents of this kind of sanctions relief are saying it's only for food and medicine. We just want to help the Iranian people. It's their money. They can't do with it. Whatever they want, we'll have limits. First off, the Iranian president, when that last deal in September was given, said that humanitarian purposes means whatever is good for the Iranian people. And we determine what's good for the Iranian people, essentially bragging they'll use that money for other purposes. And second of all, I mean, it's not like they're not going to repurpose 10 billion dollars that they were going to spend on food or whatever anyway they could perfectly do that and still make it look like on the books that they're only using the money for whatever purposes it was marked for and when this war in gaza started the biden administration froze that six billion dollars that they were supposed to get from south korea originally due to some financial freezing out of pressure because we don't want to give these billions of dollars to the supporter of Hamas. They basically reversed that and added an extra four billion dollars to it just in, a, in another roundabout way. We've covered before on this program just how much the current presidency is pushing to empower Iran in any way it can, whether turning a blind eye to its sponsoring terror proxies, whether deliberately giving it astronomical sums of money. But it just seems like The government keeps outdoing its own record with more and more policy moves with concrete, tangible effects, ripple effects throughout the whole Middle East that logically just does not make any sense for a country that is attacking U.S. forces, for a country that's skirmishing its forces with the U.S. right now, that's attacking U.S. allies. That's a danger to global shipping. That's about to get nuclear weapons, as we just talked about.
1: It's. Dumbfounding, and I still don't accept the premise that America has anything to do with Iran. I mean, I am old enough to remember when we were employing sanctions against Iran for the exact purpose of toppling the regime. And we're talking about the regime of Iran, the, the radical Islamist terrorist sponsoring regime of Iran, not necessarily all the Iranian people who live much differently under a different regime, as you can see from photos prior to 1979. I am still dumbfounded that America, which tried to bring that regime down through sanctions and came very close to doing so, has exactly reversed course, has poured billions of dollars into propping up the regime that they could have brought down without a war, without a conflict, just by the financial pressure and the sanctions. You see America actively propping up Iran, and you see Iran continuing to fund people like the terrorists who hide in hospitals in Gaza. I'm just thinking about that article from Mr. Gerald Flurry titled "Is Iraq About to Fall to Iran?" I mean, we poured billions into defeating Iran, tens of thousands of men, thousands of lives, and he said that it would be spent in vain. And wow, not only did we spend that in vain, but we're spending more outright.
2: Yes. As you you said, it's mind-boggling. It doesn't make sense physically from a rational foreign policy standpoint. Uh, A country going out of its way to empower one of its biggest enemies doesn't make sense. But like with everything else in this program, we don't look at world events just physically. Primarily, we look at it through the lens of Bible prophecy and what God has to say. We've also talked a lot on this program before about the real power behind the current presidency and how Joe Biden is not the man in charge, that there are deeper forces at play that are controlling his government for a purpose. And that purpose is to fundamentally not just transform, but destroy the United States. And that includes in the realm of foreign policy, that includes other countries, US allies, countries that stand for the same principles like Israel. This funding of Iran is helping fundamentally transform and destroy the nations of israel you could see that on the ground in gaza and in israel today what happens when you give billions of dollars to the number one sponsor of islamic terrorism worldwide a prophecy that specifically talks about iran and what it's doing in the middle east right now is in daniel 11 verses 40 to 41 talks about a king of the south or a prophetic name for radical islam led by iran as our editor-in-chief gerald Fleury has described for decades And it specifically says that Iran pushes. It's a very pushy, provocative country. It oversteps its limits. It likes to attack nations where it hurts. We're expecting Iran to eventually start pushing primarily to Europe now at this point. But the whole reason Iran can get away with what it's getting away with is because America lets it. You think back to the Trump administration when President Trump took out Iranian Super General Qasem Soleimani. Iran went to the United States with its tail between its legs. It fired a missile into an empty piece of desert, said that was its revenge, and left it at that. When somebody starts pushing back at Iran, it stops. It moves back. The only reason Iran can get powerful enough, as you're talking about, to start wars in Gaza, is if it knows its partner in the United States, which is really, as far as men are concerned, Barack Obama, lets them do it and is actively supporting them and encouraging them to do it. As long as it keeps getting that support, that's what's going to keep it pushing. That's what's going to keep it pushing the boundaries more and more and more. Verse 41 talks about the glorious land or the holy land, the land of Israel being involved. That's Iran's main prize, as we could see in Gaza today. As long as America keeps helping Iran, sponsoring Iran, giving them the green light, we're going to see them keep pushing. Not just being able to push financially, but also have the will to push until, as that prophecy brings out, It's going to meet resistance from a place that looks unlikely at this point, but we'll be expecting Europe to involve itself and to finally deal with the Iranian threat in the years to come. If our listeners would like to learn more, I'd recommend them looking at our latest print edition magazine, including one of our feature articles there, The Real Power Behind Hamas.
1: So think about this. At the anniversary of September 11th, the United States government, as you said, Announced that it was providing six billion dollars to Iran That was on September 11th and now after October 7th after the world has seen the vivid Results the blood-red results of where that money goes and what that money produces and what it means to be a sponsor of global terrorism at that time the United States government under Joe Biden, under Barack Obama, does not lay low, does not try to avoid the subject for a little while, does not try to wait a few news cycles until it brings this back up. At this exact time, it is boldly stepping forward with not just the $6 billion, the $10 billion. That's not some weird machination of global politics and oops, it's just bad timing, bad optics. There is something more than physical here, and it's not good. There's evil. It, it exists. And you think about these as two different things, like U.S. taxpayer dollars and billions of funds moving around and electricity and waivers and sanctions and things that are kind of hard to understand. Well, what's not hard to understand is Hamas coming across the line and doing what it did on October 7th. That's where that money goes. There is something evil, active in the Middle East and Of all things, the United States is involved in it under the tyrannical leadership that it's under. From the Middle East, we do track a little farther west and back to the north to our third of four regions. Richard Palmer, you watch Europe. Can you give us an update on Europe,
3: please? Yes. One story ties in with what you just heard from Mihailo, where I believe we talked briefly about some of the protests going on in Spain. Last time, we mentioned that a key far-right leader had been shot. This week, it's emerged that he may well have been shot by Iranian agents. He was an outspoken supporter of the Iranian opposition, and uh, Iran may well have hired assassins to come kill him. That's It's looking like actually it was his involvement with Iran, not Spain, that led to that shooting. Uh, that's, I think... Uh, this kind of conflict with Iran pushing specifically at the fringe right in Europe is a trend that's important to keep watching. That's, uh, this is the the component of European politics that I think would be most likely to, to really want a tough response to Iran, and Iran is uh, openly poking that movement. So uh, I could see that story getting bigger uh, potentially as time goes on. Then we had a major court ruling in Germany this week. So Germany has this unwieldy coalition. You've got the Green Party, their biggest priority is spending on the environment. You've got the Social Democratic Party, their biggest priority is spending on welfare. And you've got the Free Democratic Party and their biggest priority is not spending. And the way that they've managed to keep that together is they had this basically the 60 billion euro slash fund that was 60 billion that was earmarked for COVID funds. And because it was an emergency, it wasn't subject to the usual strict German laws on borrowing that place hard limits on how much you can borrow and the German government can borrow and that they have to balance the budget. What this government did is they repurposed this 60 billion COVID funds for environmental funds. And the German Constitutional Court stepped in this week and said, no, no, you can't do that, and said it much more harshly and severely than people thought they were going to, and that they typically have. They've basically declared the entire budget null and void, which completely reopened up the whole coalition. Now everyone's going to be fighting over these funds to deal with this now $60 that has disappeared from the German budget over the last few years. They've basically declared that the entire budget is null and void. This coalition has not been harmonious, as you can imagine, with those parties. And this is going to make things worse and could bring about or could precipitate the end of that coalition. And you look at just how fractured German politics are. It's just hard to see Germany getting a real functioning coalition through democracy again. And so this pushes this trend that we've been watching of Germany just becoming ungovernable, leading the way to the rise of a German strongman.
1: So German politics and turmoil, we've been watching that. And you've got to wonder, I think we've mentioned this before, how long will the German people put up with it? And how easy will it be for someone who is strong enough to to take advantage of that as has happened in Germany before? Uh, what is the main topic for us to focus in on from Europe?
3: Well, I'd like to be to from my home country here in the UK. We've had a lot of political turmoil, a big surprise with the Prime Minister, former Prime Minister David Cameron returning to frontline politics. So all of this happened because Home Secretary Suella Braverman has been fired. Now, we've talked with, I think, a great degree of outrage on this show about these pro-Hamas marches that have been taking place on the streets of London every weekend, where you have people openly calling for genocide against Jews, for... From the river to the sea, Palestine shall be free. you know it's a call to kill all the Jews in the Middle East. You've had people calling for jihad on the streets of London. And the police response to so much of this has just been abominable. They've taken to Twitter to explain while well, calling for jihad by the Muslim by the armies of Islam is actually not necessarily violent and explaining how they can't do anything. How they they would like to crack down on these protests, but their hands are tied. I mean, this is the same police force. This is you know, Britain's police sent drones out of after hikers in the middle of the wilderness in case they might be taking non-essential journeys during lockdown. This is this. These are the police forces that arrested grannies for sitting on a park bench during COVID. That raided houses if they believed there was somebody not from their house. That you know, they. They will enforce details of laws or laws that don't even exist, as happened in COVID in some cases, with extreme gusto when they want to. But they've been claiming and even posing and having photographs with with these anti-Semitic demonstrators. Meanwhile, they themselves, the police themselves, tear down photos showing Israeli hostages. They themselves ban a van that has a TV screen with pictures of these hostages. They ban it from London. They are behaving in an institutionally anti-Semitic fashion. And I think in some ways, the Home Secretary is responsible for policing. You could look at that and say, well, yes, she should be fired. The Home Secretary should be fired uh, for having police that act like this. But that's not why she was fired. She was fired for speaking out against it. She called these marches hate marches, which... I don't see how you characterize a march that's calling for genocide against Jews any differently to that. And she said that the police played favorites when it came to demonstrators, which, again, I don't see how you come to any other conclusion. And for this, all the great and the good from all kinds of political parties, if she was kind of given the Donald Trump treatment, where a large number condemned her, talked about how it's beyond the pale, You know, Baroness Wolsey, a a peer from her own conservative party, said she lit the touch paper and ignited community tensions. Police consultant accused her of creating more tension, increased emotion. The labor leader said she'd done more recently to whip up division and set the British people against one another and sow the seeds of hatred and distrust. So criticized throughout the political spectrum. And she was fired on Monday.
1: What do you think it was like, dear listener? How do you think it started? pick a dictatorship, pick a dystopian society on this planet that has existed. It started small and grew. And what we're seeing is a process ramping up to something. Now it's interesting to me because I'm reading a book about Winston Churchill now, and this is the same land and the same city of Winston Churchill and men who by in their tens and their hundreds of thousands gave their lives for something far different. And when I, when I saw the monument there being used and abused for these protests, it's angering. I mean, I don't think we've actually fully let loose with the outrage on the air, at least, that this can and should spark in a person who cares about just human decency, not, not even just your nation, but, but human decency.
3: It is. And I think people have pointed out that this week is very decisive for English politics in that Rishi Sunak has tried to he been, been a, be a bit of a chameleon, you know, kind of be all things to all men and come in to the Conservative Party and not pick a side, not kind of be with the the kind of the what you could call the rhinos or the kinos or whatever the Conservative name only, or to be on the on the on on the hard right either. And you know that I think is the other upsetting part of this news is this is him very much taking a taking a side. And he's embracing the left of his party. So he's kicked out the most right-wing person, Suella Braverman. She is gone. And then the other kind of the big news I mentioned with David Cameron coming back, what he did is he took the the foreign the former foreign minister, James Cleverley. He was moved to become the home secretary, Suella Braverman's own job old job. And then he brought David Cameron out of retirement to serve as the foreign secretary to to serve as a cabinet minister you've got to be you've got to be in parliament david cameron is not in parliament he is now david lord cameron of chipping norton he will be sitting in the house of lords it's been a while since we've had a, a lord occupying one of those chief roles of government so i think that's one of the more eye catching aspects of this story from this week that's got a lot of the newspapers attention
2: you have to wonder what David Kanner himself, um, never mind the fact of w- w- what all you just talked about with Suela Braverman being dismissed, the implications that has for the British government, but what his vision for Britain's role in the world would take the country. I still remember w- way back when, when he was prime minister uh, and like his vision for the country was to keep the country in the EU. Britain was in the EU at the time. Uh, a lot of conservatives didn't like that, so he decided to stage a referendum hoping that the... Uh, levers would be squashed down and then they could just move on that didn't happen and he was so unprepared for that that he resigned and i think it's telling that only one other person volunteered for the top job Theresa may after that no one really knew what to do so rishi sunak he is also a remainder within the eu and now he just picked that man i just talked about david cameron as his person to negotiate relations with Europe, with the EU. I don't think Britain is going to rejoin the EU anytime soon. But at the same time, we've talked a lot on this program about how uh, Britain trying to attach itself with this forming budding United European superstate how it's trying to associate with this European Union and mesh in with this system that's completely different from the normal, shall we say, British values and British tradition, it's going to prove to be a huge downfall to Europe in the future.
1: David Cameron, now as foreign secretary, could play a huge role in that. It's interesting that you, you talked about, Mr. Palmer, the political turmoil in Germany. And we're talking about a type of political turmoil in Britain as well as societal turmoil turmoil when you have the police uh, body slamming people without, you know, face masks during COVID and protecting jihadists who have face masks of their own for different reasons. And yet we, we forecast two different things to happen. You know, Germany is in turmoil. So watch for the turmoil to be completely erased by a strong man. Britain is in turmoil, but we don't make the same forecast for Britain. So why is that? And where can our listeners learn more about that type of forecast.
3: Well, it gets back to kind of how Mr. Zekig was was talking about going back to Brexit and this difference between Britain and Europe. And one of the landmark letters that we reference is this letter that uh, that Herbert W. Armstrong wrote, or this article that he wrote, when Britain joined the European Union. And he said that on this date, it's, it's a date fraught with ominous historical potentialities. And he said Britain's going to re- regret joining the European Union uh, something that's a, a, a fulfilled prophecy, something that has very clearly happened, regretted so much so that we that it that it became a major issue in British politics for years, and, and we've now left. And the bulk of that letter, though, is him talking about the two very different prophesied destinies for these powers. That, as he proves in his his free book, the United States and Britain in prophecy, uh, that. Britain is and an America are descended from the nations of Israel, and that these two countries had their time in the sun, had their period of greatness, not because of they'd earned it, not because of fantastic virtues of their character or better values or laws. And God certainly blessed those countries with with some some biblical principles in their system of laws, but they weren't the fundamental cause for that, that period of greatness. It was because God promised Abraham these blessings. He promised he would make his his sons great nations. I mean, if you've got a Bible, you can go back. You may have read these scriptures already where God talks about these blessings that He's going to provide Abraham. And he promises, yes, the land of Canaan in the Middle East, uh, but promises of just a really great world-dominating nation. You can read those those promises in the book of Genesis, and they promise a, a nation of far greater power uh, and strength than the role that just Israel in the Middle East has ever played. I mean, if the Bible is completely and totally accurate, there's got to be more to the story than the Jews in the Middle East as the descendants of Abraham. And so God promised these promises of just Dominant global empire to Abraham and his descendants, and these promises were again offered in Leviticus 26 to the children of Israel after they came out of Egypt. But when God gave them to Abraham, He said, "This is going to happen." When He made these same offers to Israel after they came out of Egypt, He said, "If you obey Me, these these things are going to happen." and you get into the details of the promises and basically what god said is okay he's got an con- unconditional promise to abraham conditional promises to israel if they disobeyed those promises weren't in the bin you know the, 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 his god's signature was on that document he had to he had to fulfill those promises but they'd be delayed and so israel split the northern tribes of israel went into captivity they get carried off away from the land of of israel and and Mr. Armstrong shows how you can prove from the Bible that they eventually migrated to to Britain and America and elsewhere, and then God fulfills these promises at the exact time that the book of Leviticus promises that he will. And so that is exactly, that's why Britain and America became dominant in the world. But then for Europe and for Germany, God in particular, God talks about in those same prophecies in Leviticus 26, he says, well, if you disobey me, and once these blessings have set in if you disobey me if you don't continue if you don't walk in my ways well you'll be punished i'm going to raise up foreign nations to punish you and later prophets in israel like isaiah went into details of exactly which nations god would rise would raise up to do this punishing and that's europe and that's germany and ultimately that's the heart and core of the reason of why there's two very different um different aims here. I think you know, there are other details that you could get into. I think there's a spirit and a pride and power that's been broken in Britain and America that hasn't in Europe. And there's, there's other points that you could make. But fundamentally, God says he is against Britain and America. He is correcting us and he is not against Europe and Germany. He is raising those nations up to be the instrument of his correction. That's the fundamental reason why you have this difference. And... Ultimately, both nations are going to benefit from this, from this correction. And there's going to be a time of hardship that's coming. I mean, hardship understates it for the world that comes as part of this correction. He's going to kind of correct Germany as well, this tool that he used for correction. But it's part of of a plan, not just for Israel, not just for Britain and, and America, but a plan for the whole world to come to know God. And there are also these beautiful promises in Isaiah that talk about Israel and Assyria and Egypt in the Middle East, these countries that hate each other, dwelling in unity, all being used by God, all being wealthy and prosperous and uh, just all living in global peace and happiness. So this is part of a plan to completely end forever the images that we saw coming out of Israel on October 7th and the many, many horrors we've seen throughout history. Uh, so that's the ultimate reason for this divergence. And you can read more about that in Mr. Armstrong's free book, The United States and Britain in Prophecy.
1: This is the same as you're talking there. This is the, I was feeling the same thing I felt as I was going through the uh, January trumpet draft last night. and And you just realize people who hate their own country and love terrorists, for example, they're wrong. They're not thinking right. People who love their own country and hate other countries they're not thinking right. And and so when when you see something that seems pro-Israel, right, or pro-America or pro-Russia uh, or Ukraine, you do get tangled in knots unless you realize this overview from higher up that you're giving. And the United States and Britain in prophecy is so good for that. I've mentioned before that when I read it, the first time I thought, oh, you know, how nice for Abraham and his family to have some nice blessings because he obeyed God. <laughs> no, that was a history-altering uh, promise that was made that we are still experiencing and that we're seeing. And like uh, you know, one of the articles is uh, is about the history of Israel and its its uh, historic right to its land. And the points made in there that that Mo you know Moses didn't say you have this promised land because you are Israel and you are God's favorite. He said, God is using you to punish the people who are in this land. And if you do what they do, and if you sin as they sin, you will be pushed out of this exact same land, right? God is not a respecter of persons is the point that you brought out so well there that He is doing this for mankind. He's, he's using a certain nation for the sake, not of that nation, but for the sake of mankind. And so, as you said, that's brought out so powerfully in the United States and Britain in Prophecy by the late Herbert W. Armstrong. So now we go much further west to our our last region, which is the United States and Britain, Anglo-America. Andrew Miller, you watched that region. We were just talking about the United States and Britain in Prophecy. Give us an update on Anglo-America. Conditions are literally drier than the dust bowl in the heartland of America
4: right now. A record number of U.S. citizens are falling behind on their car payments, and annual interest payments on the national debt have surpassed $1 trillion per year for the first time ever. So, Joe Biden has decided that now is a good time to phase out fossil fuels and pressure everyone into getting an electric car.
1: Okay, well, we'll probably hear more about those, those headlines as, as time goes on at thetrumpet.com and here on Trumpet Hour. The main story that you have is something that a lot of us might be familiar with. Give us your take on the main story from Anglo-America this week.
4: Well, yeah, that's what I was getting at with the electric car <laughs> comment is that Xi Jinping, the president of China, came to America this week and talked with – was welcomed warmly by Joe Biden, talked with him on a variety of topics. But the, the, the big stories were is that Xi Jinping said that China is ready to be friends with the United States – and negotiated a pretty far-reaching climate change reduction pledge with America that, when you dig into, is really going to hurt the United States and help China. Now, the climate change activists are hailing this as a big breakthrough because the two biggest carbon dioxide emitters in the world are China and the United States. Historically, in these agreements, America's lived up to its end by cutting down climate uh, carbon based emissions, and China has not. So, that's one of the reasons that uh, Xi Jinping is so happy about this agreement. Because, in large part, this is going to be America uh, and China are agreeing to reduce their usage of fossil fuel, especially America's reduces of fossil fuel, and switch over to wind, solar, and other renewable technologies that take rare earth minerals and other battery manufacturing capabilities currently located in China. I've seen reports, not from this week, but from a few months ago, that to, to actually make Biden's electric car plan a reality, since an electric car requires six times the mineral input of a conventional car, America is going to need 7 million tons of copper, lithium, nickel, manganese, cobalt, graphite, chromium, molybdenum, zinc, silicon, rare earth oxides, and other minerals. And since America buys about 80% of its rare earth mineral imports from China, this is going to be a huge boon for Chinese industry, and it's going to make America much more reliant on China. Like if Biden's plan, it might just be a pipe dream, but like if his if his plan to like switch over to these renewable energy things came to fruition, like all the commentary you've heard on America being over-reliantly on Middle Eastern oil from the last several years is going to now be said about
1: America being reliant on communist rare earth minerals from Beijing. We talked a little bit earlier about how immigration is, is an issue, but it's also it's such an issue that if a power is strong enough, it will weaponize immigration. Russia apparently doing that in Finland. Pollution is a a major issue of its own. Nobody likes pollution. <laughs> Nobody is pro-pollution. Nobody wants to live under pollution or, if possible, see other people live in a, in a polluted environment. So that's not the issue. The issue is using it as a weapon. Using it for other means. And, and you see how America and, and China are taking people's concern about pollution, which everyone is right to be concerned about uh, as a principle, and using it as a weapon, using it to transform the society, using it to get advantage over other, other societies. So there, there were a couple different takes on, on Xi's visit to, to San Francisco. You've zoned in on this, why why have you zoned in on this angle of it, and why is it significant? There are
4: many takes you could take with this. Actually, just the fact that you're welcoming a murderous dictator like Xi Jinping as a friend in San Francisco could have a lot of commentary on its own. But our editor-in-chief, he's had primarily his article, What the Paris Climate Change Agreement Was Really About, focused in back when Trump was trying to take us out of that agreement. Saying that this agreement is not really about the climate, it's and it's not even really about pollution because like this agreement, it doesn't focus on any pollutants except carbon dioxide, and they're trying to make the case that like okay, well conditions are drier than the Dust Bowl in the Heartland of America because. We're emitting too much carbon dioxide, therefore the solution to that is to phase out fossil fuels and make ourselves completely reliant on rare earth minerals being mined in Beijing, which are arguably worse for the environment than the carbon dioxide is. But it's really – Donald Trump had tongue-in-cheek once said that he thought that global warming was a Chinese hoax. And I don't think there's a ton of evidence that the Chinese are the ones who invented global warming. That's a Western idea. But the, the Chinese have definitely jumped on the global warming bandwagon to say, hey, phase down your industry and buy stuff from us who are not phasing down our industry. And so you're deindustrializing America and reindustrializing China. And really leading to a time that Jesus Christ himself referred to in Luke twenty-one, twenty-four as the times of the Gentiles. The Chinese in particular, actually if you go to Chinese universities, they study the rise of the British Empire. And how the American Empire replaced the British Empire in great detail. Not because they're history buffs who love Britain and America, because I hear they said they said whatever Britain did in eighteen hundred and whatever America did in nineteen forty, we wanna do now. And so it's like Britain and America started the Industrial Revolution. They're like, we, these societies need to be de-industrialized, and then we have our own Chinese Industrial Revolution. So like the 19th century was Britain's century, and the 20th century was America's century. The 21st century will be China's century.
1: The Times of the Gentiles, a phrase introduced, first uttered by Jesus Christ. And you cited the article, Weaponizing Environmentalism, so... Again, understand the importance of, of this topic. Understand, as you said, the importance of industry. Look at who is, is building their industry to look at who is going to be the powers of, of, the, of the future. That's all the time we have for Trumpet Hour this week. Thank you all for joining us. We thank our panel for joining us. And we thank Parker Campbell and Isaac Lorenz for the uh, editing and production of the program. Thank you most of all for listening. And we'll be back with you on the Wednesday edition of Trumpet Hour.